This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia, your weekly look at issues in church history. My name is Camden Busey, and in this 11th episode of Historia Ecclesia, we look at the historical relationship between J. Gresham Machen and Cornelius Van Til. Dr. Hart was not available to teach this lesson, so he kindly asked me to step in for him and have titled this lesson, Das Machen der Van Til, roughly translated, The Making of Van Til. confessional lesson is apropos uh, because we're going to be talking today about Machen and Van Til and some of Van Til's apologetic insights, which have a lot to do with understanding how we go about defending the faith in the midst of a sinful world. And I've titled this lesson, as you can see, it's my probably failed attempt at humor, Das Machen der Van Til, which is roughly the making of Van Til. And uh, the reason being, I, th- I think Machen was a huge part in helping to create or allow for Van Til to become what he ended up becoming. And uh, so Dr. Hart asked me to step in to teach this morning's lesson. Uh, he's not able to be here. And uh, even though we all know Dr. Hart's a huge follower of Van Til's theology, he has uh, been gracious enough to uh, allow me to spend some time looking at the connection between uh, Dr. Machen and Dr. Van Til. Now, I do want to assure you of my qualifications. I do not have a Ph.D. in apologetics. Moreover, I am neither a licentiate of the Presbytery nor a published historian. However... I have passed the Presbytery's licensure exam on church history, so I believe that makes me a licensed church historian. <laughs> my, uh, my license actually has John Meather's picture on it, and I've heard that gets me into some really exclusive cigar clubs. But anyway, this, this might be more of a lesson on historical theology than, his, than history proper. It's going to be... Um, a lesson uh, in which I try to show the progression of ideas, to try to demonstrate Van Til's dependence and then uh, building upon Old Princeton's apologetic method and then why Machen was so important uh, in enabling that or allowing that to happen. So we've got our outlines, and I think we're ready to go. My uh, thesis today, uh, this, if, if you get one thing from this lesson, this is what I want you to get. Machen was the key to Van Til's apologetic influence. And another here, feeble attempt at philosophical humor. In transcendental methodological terms, for you Van Tilians, Machen is the necessary precondition to the apologetic system of Van Til. If you didn't understand that, I've got a better one for you. For the real geeks out there, Machen is Van Til's synthetic a priori. So you can, in, I said, insert eyeball roll here. So you can, you can all roll your eyes. But the four main reasons that Machen made Van Til or allowed Van Til to become what he was were first first have to do with Princeton and the controversies that surrounded Machen and the uh, the chair of apologetics, which eventually Van Til filled. They also involve Westminster, the fact that Machen founded Westminster, uh, breaking off from Princeton in order to uh, uh, be valiant for truth and to create a new seminary that would carry on old Princeton's tradition. Uh, at Westminster, Van Til had a non-antagonistic faculty. He had the freedom to pursue his interests um, apart from other places like Princeton and even Calvin that would have been very antagonistic to him. 
uh, and to his development of thought. Thirdly, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that uh, Machen was so integral in creating, we like to say that Jesus founds his church, which he does, but uh, if Machen had not been around and had not existed, the OPC would not either. Um, so inside the OPC, uh, Van Til had the freedom from some of the problems that the CRC encountered. Uh, the CRC gradually drifted further and further into uh, liberalism or some other views during uh, Van Til's lifetime. And had Van Til not been in the OP, he would have been embroiled in a lot of those controversies. Now, granted, he had his own stuff to deal with in the OPC, but I still think that being in the OPC uh, freed him and allowed him to develop some of his thought uh, unencumbered. And then finally, uh, unfortunately, but I think it's true, that the early death of Machen allowed for Van Til to flourish and to actually receive more attention and more interaction. So Machen died in 1937, and uh, that allowed the torch of the OP, in a sense, to pass to people like Van Til, which I think um, enabled him to become more of the influence that he was. So those are my thesis. Machen was the key to Van Til's apologetic influence for four reasons. Princeton, Westminster, the OPC, and, his, and Machen's early death. So we're going to uh, work our way toward explaining some of that and trying to provide more of a context for you. So just to provide some historical uh, background here, not background, but at least some context, Machen's dates, does anyone, anyone have an idea when Machen was born? Anybody? 1881, it's, I heard, which is correct. 1881, and then I just said it, when did he die? Yeah, this isn't on your handout, right? I thought I left it out. Good. See, I don't want you guys cheating. <laughs> now, to give you a little background, in 1881, the Chicago Cubs, then known as the Chicago White Stockings, which was a name stolen by the Chicago White Sox later, actually finished in first place with a record of 56 and 28. So you see how different it was, how different it was back then versus now. Machen, hugely influential person. Uh, if you haven't been coming or haven't been able to come to the uh, this Sunday school in the past weeks, uh, Jay Gresham Machen, John Gresham, it's pronounced Gresham Machen, uh, was essentially um, one of the biggest figures, absolutely probably the biggest figure in 20th century American Presbyterianism, maybe even 19th and 20th century. Uh, but he founded, uh, he led led a, a breaking off from old Princeton because of its moves towards liberalism, what they called modernism, and he ended up founding uh, the Independent Board of Foreign Missions as a reaction to what was going on in the mission field in the Presbyterian Church. In 1929, he founded Westminster Theological Seminary across the street, and then uh, he was the key to uh, bringing about the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936. So... You're in an OPC church right now. So <laughs> we have a lot to uh, be thankful for in uh, J. Gresham Machen. And I'll leave the details uh, of his life to Dr. Hart as he is much, much more equipped to do so. Cornelius Van Til, on the other hand, attended this church for many years. I'm sure some of you knew him well and his wife and his daughter-in-law. Uh, his dates were 1895. Does anyone know or remember when Dr. Van Til passed away? 87. 87. Yeah, that's right, 1987. It's uh, becoming more and more in the past, isn't it? But still a very recent figure 
uh, hugely influential in, turn, in the, uh, the, uh, the very large uh, modern ugly hall over there is named after Dr. Van Til, but uh, <laughs> structurally sound, I think. And uh, Dr. Van Til's uh, apologetic insights uh, were just hugely uh, effective, um, hugely helpful in the midst of a lot of the theological controversy. And uh, Dr. Van Til labored for many years uh, across the street and here in this church uh, to bring about um, a consistent, unapologetic, pardon the pun, uh, reformed Christianity. Um, he was unabashedly dependent upon Scripture and upon the, uh, the expression of the system of, of doctrine taught in the Westminster, uh, Westminster Standards. He just did not want to be seen as a creative theologian. He did not want to be seen as an innovator, but rather wanted to be seen as somebody who would take the Westminster Standards because it was faithful to Scripture and apply them to different areas of theology, the key one being the area of apologetics or de- defending the faith. He wanted to defend the faith and proclaim Christ in a way that was faithful to Scripture and faithful to uh, our understanding of the world and our understanding of God, which is entirely based upon that Scripture. So we're going to try to expound upon that a little bit. Now, one of the key, key events you have on your outline there, uh, we're going to begin by looking at Machen in the 1926 General Assembly. Uh, Machen was a professor at Princeton, and uh, he was appointed to the position of professor of apologetics. And normally this is kind of a rubber stamp thing, but because of Princeton's relationship to the Presbyterian Church uh, of America, I believe, this is normally something that comes before the GA and normally gets rubber stamped. They wanted Machen, he was presented for the chair of apologetics, and so this should have been approved. Uh, but there was a rather big controversy and a problem of the time that there were the, the seminary was divided the Presbyterian Church was divided among those who considered themselves fundamentalists or modernists. Uh, modernists are more the liberal side. Uh, they're, they're the type of theology that you find Machen writing against in Christianity and liberalism. Dr. Hart spent a lot of time on that. But fundamentalism is, is also of two, there's two kinds, and that was part of the problem here. You've got, you've got the kind of fundamentalism that is holding true to the truths in Scripture, not wanting to... Uh, turn uh, Jesus into some moral figure simply, uh, not wanting to make Scripture out to be uh, something of just a, a moral guide, but rather seeing it as historically accurate, historically true, and uh, etc. all the things that are involved in that. That's one type, a theological fundamentalism, a conservatism that we all would agree with. But there's also a second type of fundamentalism, and you, this is part of the problem. You have a mix even among the fundamentalists in the Presbyterian Church at this time, the second type would be more social conservatives or people who thought things like drinking and smoking and uh, playing cards, other types of things were wrong. Uh, Machen happened to be a fundamentalist of the theological variety, uh, but not one uh, socially. He didn't. He wasn't excessive in any of these things. Nobody believes, uh, no, no Christian should believe we can be excessive in drinking and smoking and all these other things. But Machen at least wanted to allow uh, for the fact that some of these things in moderation were permissible, that we should not bind people's consciences. And uh, therefore, he was opposed to prohibition. Uh, but a lot of other fundamentalists, fundamentalists both theologically and socially, 
uh, were for prohibition. And that was the big problem because Machen was appointed to the chair of apologetics. Traditionally, the, the person who taught apologetics also taught the ethics class. So you start to see where this goes. Some of the social conservatives did not like the idea of Machen, an opponent to prohibition, teaching the ethics class at the seminary. And so what did they do? Well, they, they, they denied it. it. It was a big problem. And uh, there was a huge, huge uh, struggle over power. But and the, the board was reorganized. And um, I'll leave it to Dr. Hart to sort the, uh, the details out for you. But there was a shift in power on the board. And uh, it came about that the, the fundamentalists and the modernists uh, controversy spilled out into the fact that Machen was not given the chair of apologetics. Now, this actually has something to do with Van Til, because in 1928, Van Til was given essentially that position. But let's back up just a few years. Van, now we're on our section in the outline, Van Til at Princeton, student and teacher. Now, Van Til was a student at Princeton, both at the seminary and at the university. Uh, he, in fact, was sort of a super student. He earned four degrees in five years. He received the THB, the Bachelor of Theology, Duff, you, have a, you have a THB, I believe, correct? Yeah. Or the B, B, BD, that's right. Anyway, but uh, some of these namings and wordings were, uh, were changed uh, in recent history. Van Til received his THB in 1924 from the seminary, and he received the MA from the university that same year. These are two separate institutions, but they allowed for cross-registration. They had different organizations. They're not, they were not governed by the same president or anything. They're Princeton University and Princeton Seminary. But they did have a, a friendly relationship until Woodrow Wilson came along. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, so Van Til was able to take classes, and many other students were able to take classes both at the seminary and the university. So the THB in 1924, the MA from the university that same year, a THM in systematic theology in 1925, and then his PhD in 1927, his dissertation was titled God and the Absolute, and it was uh, an argument against a philosophy called idealism, um, which apparently uh, Jesse DeBoer and the other people at Calvin didn't read or didn't know about. Uh, and they caused him a lot of problems because people from Calvin Seminary later in the 50s would accuse Van Til of being an idealist and of presenting that philosophy. And I'm convinced they didn't know or read about his dissertation because if they would have, they wouldn't have said these things. We'll get more into that later again. Uh, as a student, Van Til was uh, very gifted, obviously, earning four degrees in five years, but he won the Midler Prize for a paper that he wrote on how covenant theology avoided pantheism and other types of errors. And the prize at the time was actually worth $700 in the 20s. Now, I've done the calculations according to uh, Consumer Price Index, and this is worth, it would be equivalent to $8,737.82. Can you imagine a paper prize of $9,000 for a seminary student? That's incredible. Now, the Green Prize from Westminster, which is actually named after Van Til's predecessor at Princeton, William Brenton Green, is a great prize. It's, it's worth $900, but it's not $9,000. <laughs> right. Now, I've also gone to the liberty of calculating the... Van Til's prize in, British, in current British pounds, uh, it's about you know, $9,000. I calculated it is worth 42 pounds. It's a joke. It's a joke. 
And also, in modern Greek currency, uh, $9,000 is 1.7 billion drachmas. If anybody's been keeping up on the Greek news, don't get into drachmas. Anyway, but when Vantil graduated in 1927, he received a call to a church in Spring Lake, Michigan. Uh, but he only stayed there for a year, and he became an instructor at Princeton Seminary in 1928. Uh, this was actually the post that was left open when Machen didn't receive it in 1926. So you start to see the connection. Right? Machen, the controversy, didn't get the job as apologetics. Van Til goes to, t- to pastor in Michigan, gets a call back to Princeton, becomes the, gets the job that Machen didn't get in 1926. Van Til was highly inf- influenced by his teachers and by the theology of old Princeton, uh, particularly a man named B.B. Warfield, uh, which we will, we will speak about, uh, but also uh, by Gerhardus Voss. He was, he was hugely influenced by Voss and uh, Voss's biblical theology. Um, if you ever have a chance, you can speak with Danny Olinger about this. He has some great stories about how Machen, and I forget the other man's name, but basically there were two students that would actually take all of Voss's classes. The other ones thought it was boring. And, uh, but Van Til ate it up, and you can see that in his apologetic. You see the influence of Voss. Uh, Bill Dennison, who many of you know, I would imagine, uh, has written a great book on this, um, dealing with the connection between Voss's biblical theology and apologetics, titled Paul's Two-Age Construction and Apologetics, if you're ever wanting to read more about that. So Van Til comes out of old Princeton, but he's still his own man. He's still his own thinker. But now he has a position uh, teaching at the, at the seminary uh, beginning in 1928. Uh, and eventually he left that job uh, and went back to Spring Lake, Michigan to take the job that he used to have. It was never filled uh, because, of the, because of the direction of the seminary. Now, skipping over quite a bit, which Dr. Hart, I'm, I'm assuming, will get into at some point. Um, when Machen came to... Uh, to found Westminster Seminary. He needed to have some continuity. He wanted to make a statement that Westminster was going to be the new old Princeton, basically. That the truths that were held, uh, that were expounded, that were taught in old Princeton by B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, all those great teachers of the 19th century and then early 20th century, that those truths are held and taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. Machen wanted to make that clear. Now, one thing you'd have to do to make that clear is to take, the, take many of the conservative faculty and to bring them over and uh, to form the faculty from essentially a lump of the dough from old Princeton. And so to do that, he needed Van Til to come. He was short on a guy. And, uh, and needed to have at least, I believe, a majority of Westminster's faculty be from Princeton. And so it was very crucial that Machen be able to recruit and to bring Dr. Van Til over to Westminster. There is some question, actually, about Machen's own views on apologetics. And it's likely that he was right in line with old Princeton and with Warfield about the, the role of human thinking and human reason. But we don't actually have evidence whether he would have been for or against Van Til's major, major contributions. But I think at least at some point that's neither here nor there. The important thing was that Machen wanted Van Til because Van Til was very bright, sharp, had a position at Princeton, and uh, would have been uh, the key to emphasizing continuity 
uh, with the conservative side of Princeton Seminary. So after only one year as an instructor at Princeton, Van Til, or uh, after only one year as an instructor, I should say, Van Til was given kind of a temporary job uh, in 1928 uh, as an instructor. After only one year, he was given a full professorship. Now, that's something that professors will spend seven to ten years trying to get. And Van Til did such a great job, they gave him full professorship in one year. But then he consulted with Machen uh, about the direction of the seminary and about what he should do, should he take this offer. Uh, being an, an, a man of integrity, he didn't want to take the job um, unless he had the intention of fulfilling that post for, for a period of time. And Machen told Van Til that the seminary was lost to modernism. Machen was of the opinion, there's, there's no coming back, this is gone. And so respecting Machen's assessment, Van Til resigned his post, and he went back to Spring Lake, Michigan. So, Don, we spoke about when Van Til was at Spring Lake. Was it before or after Princeton? It was both. <laughs> so so that, was the, that was the case. He actually went back to Spring Lake, and he took up the, the pastoral position that he had left. It had been vacant for that time. I believe they were just doing pulpit supply. And so he's back in Spring Lake, Michigan, and Machen's trying to found Westminster. And it was actually at this point that Earl Calvin Van Til was born, which is Thelma Van Til's husband, I believe, if I'm correct. Um, he was born in Michigan at the, during the time of uh, Machen's second tenure at Spring Lake. And Machen tried very hard, very hard to get Van Til to come to Westminster. Uh, he telegrammed O.T. Alice, so he's talking behind Van Til's back about trying to get Van Til. And Machen telegrammed, we must do everything in the world to get him. And then he also telegrammed Van Til, saying, and he said that if Van Til didn't come to Westminster, that it would be a crushing blow to our whole movement. And he continued, far more important is the unique value of the service you could render to us. Seldom is any enterprise so dependent upon the decision of one man as our movement is dependent upon yours. I beg you, therefore, not for our sakes, but for the sake of the gospel cause, to rejoice our hearts by accepting the invitation, we should well, be most terrified to lose heart if you do not come with us. Do you think that would persuade you to come to Westminster to teach? Well, O.T. Alice actually went to Western Michigan in person to recruit Van Til. And Van Til telegrammed back to Machen, My decision is irrevocable, but he would gladly entertain Machen's phone call. So in correspondence with O.T. Alice, O.T. I, I didn't mention, is, was another of the original faculty. So he was already on board, and so he's, Machen's using Alice to try to get to Van Til and get Van Til over here. And in correspondence with Alice, Machen then said that they should offer him the choice of teaching systematics or apologetics. They're trying to sweeten the deal. That Van Til would be consulted on other hirings. That he should receive whatever salary was necessary to get him and that he also could stay for as long or as short as he wanted. So this is, this is quite the offer. But Ned Stonehouse, who also attended this church, understood Van Til's loyalty to the CRC, which was his home church, the Dutch church. And he understood, Stonehouse understood the potential uh, that Van Til would have at someday teaching at Calvin, which is a seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is also under the authority of, this, of the CRC. And so Stonehouse wrote to Machen saying, now this one's in your handout here, it is clear to me that the only way in which he can be won is by your coming personally 
and trying to convince him that you must have him in view of the present need and that you are willing to regard the appointment as a temporary one. And eventually, uh, eventually came, um, and he eventually uh, decided that he would take up the post after Machen visited him in person and convinced him to go. And it was a big deal, not only for Machen because of his tie, or for Van Til because of his ties to the CRC, because of his family. And Rena was very, uh, very tied to her family and to move away from Michigan, that area. Uh, it's quite an ordeal for Van Til and his family. And you can read about this um, in uh, Meether's biography, which I brought a copy. If you haven't read this and you're interested in Van Til, this is fantastic. It's a great read. Meether's a, an extraordinary writer. And uh, he brings a lot of this to life. And later... Van Til wrote about his memories, about working with Machen, about his decision to come over to Westminster, and uh, he reflected upon it. This is also in your handout. He said, How good it was for those of us whom he had chosen to labor with on the faculty, to be with him daily and often to go out to lunch with him after the Saturday morning faculty meeting. He did not preach at us, telling us to do this or to do that. He left us free in the true sense of the word, freedom to develop our work for ourselves, but we could not help but imbibe something of his spirit of unreserved devotion to the one goal of lifting up the banner of Christ on top of the highest mountain. So you've got to see something of the dynamic uh, between Machen and the faculty that uh, Van Til had the freedom to carry out um, his theology and to develop it and to really work without an overbearing uh, master, um, without Machen peering over his shoulder. But even as that relation unfolded, he still could not help but, he says, imbibe uh, kind of the spirit that Machen carried in holding up the banner uh, for Christ. So that is some of the historical, uh, those, that is some of the historical context and some of the, the factors that brought Van Til to Westminster. I want to spend just one, a few moments uh, on some of the key apologetic issues. I'm not going to dive into this. This is a lesson on history. But... Um, in order to make a point about Van Til's contribution, I need to do a couple of things. Uh, the key, the key in influence, uh, one of the key contributions of Van Til is in the area of epistemology. It's just a, a fancy word, and basically it deals with uh, our understanding of, uh, man, I can't spell, our understanding of knowledge. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy that's concerned with the nature the scope, and the limitations of knowledge. And clearly the Bible has a lot to say about that. And then secondly, we have this idea of an antithesis. And this comes out of our doctrine of sin, which Drew taught about earlier this morning. Um, and for Van Til, the notion of covenant is central, that the rationale for the covenant flows out of God's Trinitarian nature, but the antithesis, that is the difference between the believer and the unbeliever, uh, actually comes to bear on this covenant. Since all men are either covenant keepers or they're covenant breakers. All men are either in Adam or in Christ. And uh, there, are gonna be, there, are, there will be certain things that are true of believers that will not be true of unbelievers. And that has a lot to do with our understanding of knowledge, how we go about thinking. Um, what's the role of God in our reasoning, the role of the Spirit in our, uh, in our minds, even in renewing our minds. And then because uh, the antithesis says, and sin says a lot about our minds, 
uh, it's obviously going to impact how we go about defending the faith to those who do not believe it. So Van Til's trying to take into account the impact of sin on our thinking and then how we go about defending the truths of Christianity to those that do not have the Spirit. So to get at that point, uh, I want to read another quote here. Van Til actually wrote on this point extensively, and in his biography, John Meether writes, this one's in your handout, Van Til expanded these ideas in his 1926 THM thesis, which he wrote for C.W. Hodge, the grandson of Charles Hodge and successor to B.B. Warfield. Here he emphasized the Kuyperian principle of the antithesis between covenant keeping and covenant breaking, and he drew conclusions about the epistemological expression of this antithesis. Van Til contrasted various ways of knowing that corresponded to the fourfold state of man as revealed in Scripture, those being innocence, sin, grace, and glory. Reformed epistemology entails an Adamic consciousness, a non-regenerate consciousness, and a regenerate consciousness. This thesis, which Van Til further developed in his syllabus on Christian epistemology, reinforces his interest in developing a distinctively Reformed apologetic. Reformed theology requires a Reformed apologetic. Now, to boil that down, what he's saying that before the fall, we had a certain relationship with sin. There was a certain mind or ability that we had, that Adam had. Then after he fell, he fell uh, from that estate. He fell into a, a state of uh, sin, uh, guilt, and corruption. And uh, his mind was darkened. But then we also can move to a period of grace in which one is saved and given the Spirit. Uh, his mind, he's regenerated. He's given a new heart. and His mind is progressively being renewed. And he, now he thinks according to the Holy Spirit. And then finally we have a state of glorification. So the fancy words here are just trying to get at the point that Van Til's trying to take into account uh, people's relationship to sin. Whether that be before the fall, after the fall outside of Christ, after the fall inside of Christ, and then in glory. So Van Til's trying to understand how we defend the faith uh, to people that are in those different groups. A couple of scriptural passages... Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip these. Uh, but if you want some scriptural warrant uh, for some of these ideas, you can look at Romans 1, 18 to 21. Another key one is Romans 1, 2, 9 through 16, which uh, at the end says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we see there's a difference between the natural man and then those who are in Christ. Uh, that the Spirit works in our, in our hearts, even in our minds, uh, to assist us and to help us in understanding God and his word and his revelation. And then Romans 5, 12 through 19. Uh, I'm actually glad Drew spoke about this, but this gets at the difference. Uh, between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. That's, that's a key passage for understanding the antithesis. And there's a difference between those in Adam and between those in Christ. So all of these things that I've just spoken about, our understanding of human knowledge in the face of sin, uh, were expounded upon and treated by two key figures in 20th century uh, Reformed theology, they being B.B. Warfield and Abraham Kuyper. Warfield, I believe his dates are on your handout, 1851 to 1921, was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. 
Uh, Kuiper, on the other hand, was a Dutchman at the Free University of Amsterdam, 1837 to 1920. He was a, he's a Dutch Renaissance man. If you want to read some interesting things, Kuiper was a theologian, prime minister, head of a newspaper. He, did, he just did everything. Uh, and so he's, a, he's an interesting character. Now, Warfield. Warfield stressed that God's revelation in history, that God revealed himself in history, and that revelation was objective, that it was clear, that it was intelligible to all men, regardless of who they were or their status or lack thereof in Christ. So he thought that God's revelation was so clear that it demanded a response that it was just certain, obvious, which is good. It is. God speaks and his, his, his speech is perspicuous, meaning it's clear that we understand, we see God revealed in nature, and all men, it's clear to them. We find that amply in Scripture, Romans 1, uh, several passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's revelation in the world and that it's, that it's clear. Uh, and so he concluded that to be rational then, if we were going to be rational and think rightly, then all men should come to the conclusions found in Christianity because Christian truth is, is the truth and it, it is the one science. So Warfield thought that Christianity was so clear and plain, just in nature, that all men should come to the Christian conclusions. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. But even though he went on to say that though this revelation is clear, that it's objective, and that it's intelligible, that he proposed a method that kind of undercut that thesis. The way Warfield would do his apologetic was to provide basically probabilistic methods or arguments that would say, see, God probably exists. So on the one hand, he had an absolutely certain and clear, intelligible revelation, which is good. Then on the other, he had a method that was not faithful to his own understanding. He had a method that was probabilistic. He'd say the conclusions of his arguments would be, so God probably exists. This is a simplistic view, but that's basically it. So you you see a contradiction or an inconsistency in Warfield between his understanding of revelation and his method. That's what Van Til noted. Van Til noted that Warfield incorrectly inferred that unbelievers can rightly interpret God's revelation. But as we have seen in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, this is not the case. That there is an absolute ethical antithesis, a different way of thinking due to the fact of sin. The believers and unbelievers have a difference in the way they interpret things. And unbelievers have their minds darkened and do not interpret the world as a Christian would interpret the world. And that's something that, that Warfield was a little bit inconsistent on. Now, Kuiper, on the other hand, contra Warfield, Kuiper stressed the antithesis. He stressed the difference between believers and unbelievers very much. And the two groups, the unbelievers and the unbelievers, he said, produce two different theories of knowledge. One acknowledges dependence upon God, good, and the other is built upon the idea of human autonomy. That's true, but it's, it's bad that that's the case, but it's true. And so though Kuiper had a healthy understanding of the difference between believing and unbelieving thought, he ended up still having a, a realm of neutrality. And he thought there were certain matters, such as mathematics and logic, counting, weighing, measuring, other things that uh, were neutral. So he had a view that um, sin did not impact and affect everything, that it it impacted most things, but there were certain elements of our thought, certain objective measures that sin did not impact. 
And the conclusion that Kuiper arrived at was that apologetics was basically useless. <laughs> that there's not much value in attempting to reason with an unbeliever because the differences between the two groups are just so sharp that it basically becomes a shouting match. Some, there's some truth to that. Uh, we understand that the differences are sharp, and it can resort sometimes when we're trying to defend the faith to somebody. It just ends up being, well, blah, 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 and the, other, and the unbeliever will say, no, no, you're wrong. Uh, but, but this is not the case. Uh, it doesn't have to resort to that. And so Van Til uh, sought to bridge the gap between the two. If you look at your handouts, standing on the shoulders of Warfield and Kuiper, we honor them best if we build on the main thrust of their thought rather than if we insist on carrying on what is inconsistent with their basic position. Then are we most faithful to Calvin and to St. Paul. With grateful acknowledgement of indebtedness to both Kuiper and Warfield, to Herman Bovink and other associates and followers of Kuiper, to the various associates and followers of Warfield, to J. Gresham Machen in particular, so we see Machen's reliance on Warfield, we would take their common basic contribution to the idea of the full Christian faith and the self-attesting scripture and build as best as we can upon it. The great contribution of Kuiper discussed in this chapter is that of his analysis of the idea of autonomy. Never again can we forget that the natural man, working from his adopted principle, will seek to weave the special principle into the natural principle, and that he will seek to do this in philosophy and science no less than in theology. Van Til's saying that natural man will do whatever he can to get around the conclusion of God. He wants to reject God because he's in his sin, and he wants to make his... It's convenient for him to reject God and the truths of Scripture because it allows for him to sin, even though he knows deep down that he's rejecting God and his truth. So Van Til's saying Kuiper had that insight that um, unbelievers are going to do this. They're not going to think correctly and honestly, that they're going to suppress anything they can in order to hide God. On the other hand, the great contribution of Warfield discussed in this chapter is his insistence that Christian theism is the only internally intelligible system of truth. Combining these two great principles held by both men but not equally emphasized by both, we shall claim that the Christian system is undoubtedly true, that it is distinguishable intellectually by men because it has been distinguished for them by God through his word, and that unless one therefore presupposes its truth, there is no theology, no philosophy, no science that can find intelligible meaning in human experience. So he's saying, I like things from Kuiper. I like things from Warfield. But Kuiper in toto has some problems. Warfield in toto has some problems too. So what Vantil does beautifully is he takes the best of both and puts them into Vantilian apologetics. That's, that's the key. And it all has to do with the understanding of God's revelation and the influence of sin upon our minds. So that's, that's the, uh, the simple version of what I just gave you. Greg Bonson, he writes, I believe he also attended this church for a time. I mean, this is like a Calvary OPC all-star lesson. Um, you know, he was a person who can, uh, made, or, uh, Bonson wrote, a person who can explain the ways in which Van Til agreed and disagreed with both Warfield and Kuiper is a person who understands presuppositional apologetics. Van Til bridges the gap with his doctrine of common grace and with his particular transcendental method. Now, why did I tell you this? Why, why did we go through this? Well, all of this gets just at a part of what Van Til became. This is, a, this is one critical element in uh, Van Til's theology. 
And he was just a thoroughly reformed apologist. He would look at somebody and say, no, we can't defend the faith like this because it's not faithful to what Romans says about the natural man. Or it's not faithful to what 1 Corinthians says about our abilities apart from Christ. So what did he do? He said, we've got to defend the faith this way. And he was just trying to be very consistent in everything that he did. Unabashedly reformed uh, and trying to make that the approach that, that, he, that we all take and that he taught in the classroom. And like I said earlier, he did not want to be considered an original thinker. He did not want to be considered a creative apologist uh, or an innovator, but he simply wanted to be consistent with the system of doctrine taught in Scripture and handed down through the Reformed tradition. That's all. That's, he would have been happy with that. And Oliphant, Oliphant knew him well. Dr. Oliphant, he will tell you the same thing. So, back to our thesis. The, uh, das Mädchen der Vantil. If Machen would have been for prohibition, then Van Til would have stayed at Spring Lake longer, and he would not have taught at Princeton Seminary, at least not in 1928. He would not have had the early opportunity. He would not have been given the, the, uh, the shot that he was given in academia. A quote here, Furthermore, had Machen transitioned successfully into that field before he formed Westminster Seminary in 1929, he would not have solicited Van Til's services. Thus, Machen's defeat in the church was crucial in creating the career path for Van Til, both at Princeton and later at Westminster. That's, uh, that's John Meather. Secondly, if Machen did not work so hard to get Van Til to join the faculty of Westminster, then Van Til would probably have taught at Calvin Theological Seminary. He was offered a job there on three separate occasions, once even to become president, but if he would have gone there, he would have been embroiled in fights with the faculty. Uh, I've got some just amazing letters between him and some of the people there. They're just these are some of the most inflammatory things you'll ever see, at least from, from Calvin to Van Til. Some of the things written about him were just amazing uh, and very unfortunate. And it all stemmed from their misunderstanding of Van Til's system, and they thought that he was an idealist. And so they attacked him in the 1953 edition of the Calvin, uh, Calvin Journal. Um, if that's what it's called, I forget. They also attacked him in a couple, in TNT, the Torch and Trumpet, which was a pro, aptly, aptly uh, abbreviated TNT because of the rhetoric in it. And so he would have had to deal with this. If, if Calvin would have, or if Vantil would have ended up at Calvin, he would have had to deal with this kind of stuff on the faculty. He would not have had the freedom to develop his thought as he did at Westminster. He would not have had the colleague the collegial support, and he wouldn't have had the, uh, the particular people he did over at Westminster to help sharpen his views. Thirdly, if Machen did not found the OPC, I, I use that in quotes, if he did not get the OPC started, if Machen did not stress the need for Van Til to come over to the OP, then Van Til would have stayed in the CRC, and he would have been not, involved, not only involved in battles uh, at Calvin, but he also, also would have been involved in battles over various church issues. Uh, because the, the CRC, he eventually later in life said it was a good thing he came into the OP. Even though it had its controversies with Gordon Clark and other things, he, he did not have to deal uh, with the direction they ended up going in. And then finally, fourthly, uh, unfortunately, but I think it's true, if Machen didn't die in 1937, the torch would not have passed to Van Til at least that early. Van Til might not have received as much attention when he did, and Van Til's influence, influence in the OPC might, might have been very different. Um, 
But because of Machen dying early, uh, Van Til received more attention. Therefore, people would more likely read his works and interact with them, which spurred Van Til on to further work and further clarification. So the four reasons, Princeton, uh, Princeton, uh, Westminster, um, the OPC, and Machen's early death, I really do think were the historical foundation or allowance for Van Til to become the Reformed, the, uh, reformed apologist that Van Til became. We've got, looks like, one or two minutes. Um, I'm willing to take any questions. Hey, comments? Yeah. I think you're saying that Porterfield was an evidentialist, and so was Bacon, but Bacon was leaning toward that book presuppositionalism. I, I want to say that we don't know exactly... We, I think we have clear evidence that Machen was right in line with Warfield. At least that there, I read a Van Til quote that mentioned that. We don't, I don't think we have evidence to know whether or not Machen would have been for or against Van Til's insights. And Machen was a New Testament guy, and so he was not really working in that area a whole lot. Plus, he passed away in 37, so you've got to wonder how much was available to him from Van Til. And Van Til's key work started coming in the 50s the 40s and 50s. And um, even though until was very consistent in his thinking throughout his entire life, um, I just think it's probably a question we're not able to answer. I wish we could, but I don't, I don't know if Machen was for or against Van Tiller, or, or if he, I don't know Machen's thought well enough to know if he would have been on board with it. But um, I think we have enough to say that, yeah, uh, Warfield had evidentialist leanings and that his method... Uh, resulted in some probabilism, which is a problem, an incon- inconsistency for him. Yeah, Luke? I understand that people who were against prohibition were also generally against women's suffrage. Do you happen to know what Machen thought about women's suffrage? No, I, I don't. No. I don't think he liked the idea that women suffer, but no. I'm <laughs> Actually, I, that's something you should ask uh, Dr. Hart. I, I don't know. You kind of want like to say, oh, yeah, he'd be, you know, he would like women that have the opportunity to vote, but I really don't know what he'd say. He had some... He'd surprise you on some things. So Machen is kind of he's an enigma wrapped in a riddle. I actually saw, as we close, uh, a joke. Uh, somebody once printed up some signs that said, End Women's Suffrage, and handed them out on the street, and got a, unfortunately got a bunch of women to say, Yeah, and they were all protesting. End Women's Suffrage, End Women's Suffrage. It's a terrible thing. So anyway, let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to get more information about this program and other resources from Daryl Hart, please visit oldlife.org. If you would like to hear more of our programs, please visit us online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information about everything we're up to, and you can actually contact us through the website as well, or by email at mail at reformedforum.org, or even on Twitter at Reformed Forum, and now by the post, P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.